I invite you to turn with me to Mark 16. We've been studying the book of Mark, and I'm going to go skip ahead to the end because the last thing that Mark records for us is the resurrection of Christ, and we want to celebrate that this morning, not only in our service, but as we uh, come and think about God's Word and what it says to us. This is God's Word. Uh, We see it as God's Word, and we want to come to it and hear what God has to say to us this morning, particularly through the Gospel writer Mark. I'm going to read Mark 16, 1 through 8. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him? But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. May God bless the reading and hearing of his word and write its eternal truth upon our hearts this morning. Well, there are a lot of great religious leaders in our world, men like Buddha, Muhammad, and Confucius. And if you know where these men are buried, you can actually go and dig up their bones, or at least the dust of their bones, because they haven't been around for quite a few years. But if you went to where Jesus was buried, as you full well know, what we're celebrating here this morning, his body is not there. There are no bones. There's nothing. He is, he is alive And this resurrection that we celebrate is so important to us Christians that we celebrate it by worshiping every Sunday instead of Saturday. We actually celebrate the resurrection not just on Easter, but every week on Sunday, uh, the Lord's Day, the day when Christ rose from the dead. We don't continue to honor the Sabbath as being on Saturday, but Sunday. So the resurrection is very, very important, and that's an understatement to you this morning. Now, we have before us today a very short account of the resurrection. It's only eight verses long, and, of course, Mark is known to be brief and to the point. His gospel, his, his uh, account of the life of Jesus is the shortest account of, the other, of all the gospels, the, of the four gospels. He's brief, he's to the point, as he is here. But he's also known for packing a lot of significant things into a very small space. And this is certainly the case here in what he does say and what he does not say. Now within these eight verses this morning, I want to demonstrate three things. How Mark shows us, number one, the reality of the resurrection. Two, the relevance of the resurrection. And finally, three, the response to the resurrection. First, Mark demonstrates to us the reality 
of the resurrection. Now you've probably heard a lot of the alternative explanations that have been put forth to explain away the resurrection. I mean, we live in modern times and most people don't like to believe in miraculous events. Ever since the early 20th century, people have been trying to prove from science that resurrections, it just doesn't happen. It's impossible. And not only the resurrection, but any miracle whatsoever. We think everything has to be uh, proven by the scientific method. Maybe Jesus didn't actually die on the cross, but uh, he just uh, passed out. Of course, you would at least pass out if people did that to you. This is called the swoon theory, and it's probably been around the longest, that Jesus just swooned on the cross and and recovered later to show himself to his disciples. Actually, the writers of our creed knew of this, this, the Apostles' Creed that we just said moments ago was written in the 300s A.D. In that little part where it says that he descended into hell, if you know Greek and read the original language, it says he descended into Sheol. You remember when I read Psalm 16, I told you that Sheol was the place of the dead. So literally what the writers of the Apostle Creed are saying is not that he literally went down to hell. He experienced hell on the cross. He, He paid the penalty there, and there was no need for him to go anywhere after that. So he didn't go down to hell, but he went to the place of the dead. He died, is what it's saying there. So when we say the creed and we say he descended into hell, we're saying that he he literally physically died on the cross. We'll see why that's important in just a moment. So the swoon theory, that's that's one theory. Uh, Another theory is that the, the disciples and the early Christian leaders were under delusions. They had this passionate expectation that Jesus just could not be dead. It couldn't be true. Some say it was just a fraud or a hoax that they pulled over on the entire world, for that matter. Uh, Probably the greatest hoax in history, if that were the case. And others, especially in our day and time, and this is probably the the, the most uh, recent and most popular one today, is that this is just a legend or a myth, a symbol. The disciples did not mean for us to take them literally. Well, Mark demonstrates to us in these short passages... It's almost as if he knew these objections and he's writing in response to them because we have several evidences given that really put away these arguments against the resurrection. And the first one is this. First of all, multiple names are mentioned in these verses. And Mark was written 30 to 35 years after the after Jesus rose from the dead. Uh, Now, if we go back a few verses, you'll see that Mark takes a lot of pains to prove that Jesus was actually dead. And he mentions a number of people by name. Uh, If you look at verses 15, uh, chapter 15, verse 37 to 40, it says there, Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. Verse 40, there were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the younger, and of Joseph and Salome. The same people who are mentioned in chapter 16, verse 1. They were there when Jesus died. They saw that he died. They were going to the tomb because they knew he was dead. Mark is mentioning 
their names, and they were probably still alive. So the first readers of this gospel would have been able to go and ask Mary Magdalene and Mary and Salome if what they, said, if what they saw and experienced was actually true. If you look at verse 42, he mentions some other names. When evening had come, since it was, it was the day of preparation, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Look at verse 44. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. So he's making note of the fact that Pilate, wow, Jesus is already dead. Mark wants you to know that Pilate reacted that way. Verse 45, and when he learned from the centurion, from another guy, that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. The corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock and he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Verse 47, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph saw where he was laid. So he's, he's giving us this list of witnesses and he's making sure that there's no doubt about the fact that Jesus Christ was dead. When I read that and, and was thinking through this, I thought, wow, that reminds me uh, of a Monty Python sketch. And maybe you don't even know who Monty Python is, but bear with me for a moment. Some people do. But there's a sketch, they're a comedy team, the Dead Parrot sketch. A man goes into a, a pet store and he has apparently been sold a dead parrot that had been nailed to the perch uh, to make it look like he was alive. And this, this shopkeeper is insistent that the, the bird is not dead. He's just, he's just swooning. Uh, he's he's uh, taking a nap. Or he's uh, pining for the fjords, he said, because he's a Norwegian blue parrot. And uh, the the person who has just bought this, this poor dead parrot, uh, he gets exasperated and says, you couldn't put a four million volts through this parrot. Uh, he's bleeding demised. He's not pining for the fjords. He's passed on. This parrot is no more. He has ceased to be. He has expired. He has gone to meet its maker. He's a stiff. He's bereft of life. He rests in peace. If you hadn't nailed him to the perch, he'd be pushing up daisies. His metabolic processes are now history. He's off the twig. He's kicked the bucket. He's shuffled off his mortal coil, run down the curtain, and joined the choir invisible. This is an ex-parrot. I feel like Mark is doing the same thing, maybe not in such comic terms, but he wants us to know without a shadow of a doubt that Jesus indeed was dead, and he mentions witnesses. Well, the Apostle Paul does the same thing. If we were to go to 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Paul's doing the same thing that Mark is doing. This is what we've told you 
it happened, it was a real event, and if you don't believe me, there are at least 515 people that will confirm the story. They're still alive. Go ask them. So he's mentioning these names for a purpose. Now notice the names that he does mention. This is another evidence. The witnesses are all women in chapter 16. Now we might not think so much about that, but in those days, uh, it, it, was, uh, it was not uh, good policy to have women as witnesses. In fact, women at that time had a very low status in both the Roman and the Jewish world, and in most cases, the testimony of a woman was not admissible evidence in court. Yet Mark and the other gospel writers, writers repeatedly tell us that women were the main witnesses to the events of both the crucifixion and the resurrection. Now the reason I point this out is, not to demean women in any way, these women actually were courageous. Where are the disciples? They've run off scared for their lives. The women show up. They're there at the crucifixion. They're there at the empty tomb. They show great bravery. But if you're making this up, if you're starting a myth and a legend and want to start your own movement or religion, you wouldn't write it this way. You wouldn't say the people who are the witnesses that you can go talk to are these women, especially in that day and time. You would say, no, you need to go ask this important person here or this important person there or come ask me. I'll tell you the truth. But no, he writes it this way because that's the way it actually happened because it's true. You don't write legends like that. And, and we could list off some other things as well. The gospel writers tell us the story in ways that you wouldn't write it if you were making it up. Now, also notice, thirdly, and I've already mentioned it, that the disciples were absent. If you were making it up and you were one of the disciples, I'd write myself into the story. If I were one of the disciples, I would say, yes, I showed great bravery uh, when I was uh, going to the tomb and saw Jesus was resurrected. And, you know, well, they're writing it like it really happened. Mark relied upon Peter's preaching to pull, pull his gospel together. That's what most people think, and there's some reasons to believe that. So Peter is telling the stories. He's telling it as it actually happened, and Mark's recording it. Of course, Matthew, Luke, and John were there, and they recorded the same things. They didn't make themselves look good. They recorded it, uh, and they told all about their own cowardice, how they abandoned the Lord. Peter himself talks about denying Christ. You wouldn't tell it that way if you were just making it up. Now, one last evidence that Mark gives us, and it's probably the most overlooked bit of evidence that we find in all of the gospel accounts, is how completely unexpected the resurrection was to the disciples. You look at this text. I mean, nobody was expecting Jesus to rise from the dead, not even his disciples. Isn't that strange? The women go to the tomb fully expecting him to be there, fully, ex fully expecting him to be dead. The disciples don't show up. They're not even there. Jesus had already predicted his death at least three times, Mark records for us, 
He re, re, uh, predicted his death and his resurrection, but they had no capacity to understand it because first century Jews were not expecting people to rise from the dead like Jesus rose from the dead. The Old Testament hardly mentions resurrection. There are a couple of accounts. Daniel chapter 12 talks about resurrection at the end of time. It says there shall be a time of trouble uh, and then and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some, some to shame and everlasting contempt. Isaiah 26, your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise, you who dwell in the dust. But all of these are talking about a, a general resurrection of all people at the end of the age, the day of judgment. They don't have a category for an individual resurrection like Jesus experienced or had predicted before. That's why when he, he uh, predicted his death and resurrection, they didn't get it. They never understood it. You don't see the disciples going, now wait, Jesus just died. Oh, he said he was going to rise again in three days. Let's go see if he's there. The ladies don't show up going, well, of course he's there. No, they're astonished and they're afraid when they see that Jesus... So nobody was expecting this to happen. Why is that significant to the evidence? Well, you wouldn't make up a story like this. There were a number of so-called messiahs that popped up during the time before Jesus came to earth, between the 400 years when the Romans came into power. So-called messiahs, people who said, I'm the new Davidic king, I'm the leader that's going to break the oppression of the Romans, and of course the Romans would come and kill them. And nobody else made up stories about these leaders being resurrected. And it happened several times in history. But here's Jesus doing this thing that had not even really entered their minds at all. It wasn't part of their religion or expectation. And then it happened. And then they understood it. That's how it's written. So it really does give us lots of evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the way it's written. It's almost as if Mark knew the objections that were coming. Well, Mark gives us all this evidence. Why should we believe this evidence? Why is that important? And I want to see this, the second thing. Mark stresses the relevance of the resurrection. Is the resurrection necessary? Must a Christian believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ? There was a survey conducted a few years ago that said 30% of people who call themselves born-again Christians do not believe that Jesus came back to physical life after he was crucified. That's baffling to, to me. How can you be a Christian, a born-again Christian, and not believe in the resurrection? It's terrifying that there are people who would call themselves believers and not believe in the resurrection. And you might say, well, that's kind of harsh. I'm just going on what the Bible says. The Apostle Paul says, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are all, of all people most to be pitied. If Christ is not raised from the dead, we should all just go home and not ever come back to church again because it's a grand waste of time. This is the last thing that Mark records for us. 
it, yeah, I know in most of your Bibles that there are verses 9 through 20, but you'll see there there's a note probably in the margin that says these were later editions. They're not written in the same style of Greek. It's obviously someone who has come along later and added these uh, different verses to give us a more satisfying ending. We'll talk about that more in just a moment. But here's where Jesus ends, with the women leave, uh, where Mark ends this, this account of Jesus with the, the ladies leaving and being astonished. And, but it's the last thing and the most important thing that he takes note of in the life of Jesus. And it's important because there are many people today who say that Jesus was just one of the world's great teachers, along the lines of Muhammad and Buddha and Confucius. However, if Christianity is simply following the teaching of Christ, then there would have been no need for Christ to die or be resurrected. We could have just gathered around and talked about his teaching. It wouldn't have been important for anyone to see Jesus after he rose from the dead. It would also mean that Jesus is no different than any other dead religious teacher in the world, Buddha, Muhammad, or Confucius. Other religions are primarily philosophies. That is, they're sets of teaching about how to live. If you're, an, if you're a Muslim, you follow the five pillars of Islam. You do these five things and you can expect to get to paradise when you die. In Buddhism, you follow the eightfold path. In Confucius, Confucianism, you do whatever Confucius say, uh, whatever that might be. Christianity, on the other hand, is primarily an announcement of events in history, things that happened. Those events include Christ becoming a man, God becoming a man, a human being, the crucifixion, this God-man dying in our place, the resurrection, the God-man breaking death so he can live with us and us with him forever. Jesus didn't come to give us just a set of rules to follow in order to earn salvation from God. Christianity is telling you what Jesus came to earth to do to gain salvation for you. We're saved by grace, not by our performance, not by following a list of do's and don'ts. See, it's the miraculous things that do save us that Jesus did. So it's important to believe these miraculous things. There are reports that Muhammad may have done some miracles, but that's not the essence of Islam. Whether or not he did miracles is not important. It's following the teaching that's important for Islam. But if Christ did not do any of these miracles, then especially rising from the dead, then it's all pointless because we're saved by what he did, not by what he taught. So if you take away the historical events of Christ's life and death and resurrection, you actually take away the heart of Christianity and it just becomes another life philosophy that's supposed to save you through your own self-effort. But that would not be the case because you could never do it good enough. Christ had to come and do it for you. The resurrection is significant because it is the crowning achievement of what Christ came and did. It's the topper. It makes the significance of Jesus' life and death complete. So it is relevant, and Mark is showing us that by recording it last. Now thirdly, and briefly, a response. Mark prompts a reaction to the resurrection. Now as I've noted, uh, verses 9 through 20 are later editions. Most scholars agree. Um, 
Why does Mark end it here? Why does he just drop it and cut it off at such a strange place in the story? We've got all the facts before us. And then he just stops. Well, some people believe that Mark leaves off the narrative abruptly to put us into the story. It's as if now we hear the troubled testimony of these women, the facts are before us, now what will we do? How will we react to this? Will we ignore it or will we finish the story for ourselves? We put ourselves into it and carry out the Great Commission and follow him. So actually those ancient writers who tried to finish the story for Mark by adding those last few verses, they were actually on the right track. He's inviting us to do the same, to respond to this gospel and and to carry it forward and out in our lives and into the world. And of course, that's what the disciples did. It changed their lives as they responded to it. You know, they were nothing special. They were a bunch of fishermen, uh, uh, a motley crew of, of fishermen, a tax collector, some other common Joes. One guy was an insurrectionist. You know, you pull these guys together... And uh, they were nothing special until after the resurrection, until after Christ uh, ascended and the Spirit came down. Then they became, as Acts tells us, men who turned the world upside down. It's all because of Jesus Christ. It wasn't a hoax. It wasn't a legend. uh, It wasn't uh, them dreaming up something or just hoping it was true because these men changed the world and died for this thing. They laid down their very lives. They sacrificed themselves, not because it was a delusion, not because it was a legend, not because it was a lie, because it was the truth. And Jesus was with them because he was alive, and he worked in them and through them. How will you respond? How does the resurrected Christ change the story of your life? That's the most profound question that you could ask on Easter. How does the resurrected Christ change the story of your life? How will you live from this point forward? Will you respond to the good news of a risen Savior who's died for sin in your place? Will you carry that message of reconciliation with you in your heart and to others? These are the questions you need to deal with. Jesus Christ is the most profound person in history. Even if you're an atheist, you cannot deny that fact. He's made more of an impact in the world than anybody ever has or ever will have. This person can't be ignored. How will you respond to him? He's important. He's risen. He's alive. And you can have a relationship with him. He offers that freely by grace. And that is why we celebrate Easter and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together.